Okay, so in the last video, we um, pointed out that there's multiple epistemic models and we just, we kind of differentiated between them. The, the Catholic model that's based on the church, the sola scriptura model of the Protestants, the liberal model, the new orthodox model and the fundamentalist model. But I mentioned that the sola scriptura model of the Protestants um, wasn't relying only on scripture, but also uh, relied on the early church fathers. So we're going to be talking about that in today's lecture, or I'm recording all these on the same day, but anyway, in this third lecture, we're going to be talking about um, the sola scriptura model from the Protestant perspective. And in this lecture, I will be reading a lot of quotes. So it's going to be a little bit tedious, but um, this quotes coming from fairly well-established sources is going to uh, kind of lay down the foundation for what I'm going to be discussing in the, in the future um, episodes. Okay, so this is um, a famous um, quote for by Martin Luther uh, speaking in front of the Diet of Worms. Obviously, he didn't write this down. Somebody probably um, remember what he said and wrote it down later. Uh, but um, uh, so Martin Luther uh, <clears throat> is... Um, called by, by the emperor to a trial. It happened, this is happening in 1521, a few years after he posted the 95 Thesis. And uh, this is what is recorded for him to have said. He says that unless I'm convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, God help me, amen. <clears throat> uh, so basically what he's doing in, in this in the statement is that he's shifting the epistemology from popes and councils, uh, another way of saying the church, to the scripture and the word of God. But only a few years later, there seems to be a shift in Luther's thinking. And I'm quoting this from uh, the book, Christianity's Dangerous Idea by Alistair McGrath. Uh, it says, the outbreak of the Peasants' War in 1525 brought home to Luther that this new approach was dangerous and ultimately uncontrollable. If every individual was able to interpret the Bible as he pleased, the outcome could only be anarchy and radical religious individualism. So if you have an epistemology that says sola scriptura, that means everyone, instead of relying on an authority like the church, has to go to the Bible and figure out what the Bible says. But then what happens is that every individual goes and reads the Bible the best they can and ends up coming to their own conclusion. So you have this radical theological individualism and anarchy because different people come to different ideas. And <clears throat> Martin Luther got confronted with this with this concern uh, a few years later after after the after his um, um, trial uh, as a result of the peasants war now the peasants war uh, in basically luther after his trial he he came under the protection of of the nobility of the land uh, and they sort of kept him out of harm's way and um, other Protestants ended up building allegiances to, to some of the secular leaders of the countries they lived in. So by, 
I shouldn't use secular because nobody was secular back then, but civil authorities at that time. And a lot of the civil authorities ended up siding with the Protestants and this alliance was formed. And now you have the peasants, just common folk, people that were working the land, who were listening to Luther and basically just going along with his teaching and taking up the Bible and studying it and realizing that the Bible doesn't teach uh, that the nobles, you know, should own the land and, and that their responsibility is to work all day and, and, and give most of their earnings to the, the nobility. So they actually revolt following Luther's teaching, so to speak. And then Luther realizes, man, this is creating a, a problem because we have this alliance with, with the nobility and uh, we're under their protection. And the whole reason the Reformation is successful is because we're being protected by the nobility. And now uh, it, it, the, the peasants are giving the impression that our teachings are causing, uh, causing revolt and causing social unrest. So anyway, as this is happening, um, it really comes across to Luther that uh, the Sola Scriptura principle can have problems and an epistemology based on the Bible alone might not work the way he intended. So um, Alistair goes on in, um, I'm, I'm going back and forth between the, the book uh, Reformation Thought and the book Christianity's Dangerous Idea. So here's another quote from Reformation Thought. It says, the mainstream reformers had no difficulty with the notion of a traditional interpretation of the Bible. So here I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the fact that Protestants, the mainstream Protestants, what, what, they came, what came to be known as the magisterial reformers, uh, people like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, uh, Melanchthon and others, um, they had a lot more of a comfortable uh, um, relationship to the early tradition of the Christian church. And then uh, in, a, in a few slides, we're going to be talking about the radical reformers. So basically you have magisterial reformers and radical reformers. The radical reformers rejected all tradition. And we'll come, we'll come to that in a second. So this quote says, the mainstream reformers had no difficulty with the notion of a traditional interpretation of the Bible. There were many ways to interpret the Bible, even if you're working with the Bible alone. <laughs> For those on the podcast, I'm starting the quote and, and then commenting on it. So I'll, I'll go back and read the whole quote in one go after I'm done with this idea. But um, there's many ways to interpret the Bible if you're just working on the Bible alone, but there is a traditional interpretation of the Bible that the, the reformers were promoting. Okay, so now let me go through the whole quote in one go. The mainstream reformers had no difficulty with the notion of a traditional interpretation of the Bible. Mainline Protestantism was emphatic that it was not a new church brought into existence by the happenstance of the 16th century. Rather, it represented a reform and renewal of Christianity, implying and affirming continuity with the great historic tradition of the Christian faith, stretching back through the patristic era to the apostles themselves. Um, so uh, in this graphic I put together, I show a timeline starting from, you know, the beginning of, of the first millennium AD, uh, let's just say year one AD, going all the way to 2020, where we are now. Um, so in the Protestant mind, there was sort of a good tradition <clears throat> that uh, covered the first two, three, four hundred years of Christian history. And after that, uh, things went, went bad and traditions took a bad turn. So the, the Catholic Church uh, at the time of the Reformation were following this, this newer tradition and they sort of went off track. But uh, they were trying to go back in time to the tradition of the church fathers 
and to read and understand scripture within that context. Okay, here's another quote. The mainline, mainline reformers argued that since Protestantism represented the continuation and renewal of apostolic Christianity, it was able to share in the early Christian community's decisions concerning norms of faith and that community's identification of heresies and other inauthentic forms of faith. Most Protestants therefore accepted the traditional ecumenical creeds regarding the, these as publicly authorized and endorsed interpretations of scripture. This comes from um, Christianity's dangerous idea again by Alistair McGrath. Okay, now in contrast to the magisterial reformers, here's a quote that describes the radical reformation. Um, it's primarily the Anabaptists because other other people that are grouped under this umbrella of, of a radical reformation, um, some of them fell into various kinds of fanaticism and, and so on, but uh, uh, the Anabaptist group is probably the best representation here. <clears throat> it says Anabaptism was critical of the notion of tradition, not necessarily on account of a disregard for the wisdom of the past, but because of a more fundamental belief that the true Christian church had ceased to exist at an early stage typically following the conversion of Constantine in the fourth century. Why pay attention to the theological past when it was not truly Christian? So you have this divergence between uh, those that still rely on, on, on early tradition and those who disregard tradition and, and uh, try, to, try to follow the Bible alone. Um, another quote from Reformation thought, um, it says the reformation program of a return to scripture ended up being considerably more complex than at first had seemed to be the case. The, so the slogan scriptura sola turned out to mean something rather different from what might have been expected with the radical reformation alone confirming to the popular stereotype of the reformation on this point. So anyway, I'm, I'm quoting several books here and I'm, I'm going to switch authors and, and talk about another book in, in a few seconds that show that the magisterial reformers back in the time of the reformation and then I'll show that even up to today the descendants of the magisterial reformers um, had a view of sola scriptura that wasn't strictly bible only the way we would think it was in other words when we hear the, the, the phrase of scripture, we think, okay, theology is done with the Bible alone. <clears throat> but the way the reformers understood Sola Scriptura was that it was more of a return to the original interpretation of the Bible that was held by the church fathers, which meant that you had to rely on the writings of the church fathers to understand what that is. Okay, so... Um, at some point within the past few decades, uh, I mean, it goes back all the way to the Reformation, but there's sort of a renewal of this. You have Catholic and Eastern Orthodox apologists that have been arguing that the, the Sola Scriptura principle just doesn't work. And the proof of this, one of the proofs, has been the theological confusion that exists within uh, evangelicalism or within the Protestant world as a whole. Basically, there's a, a ton of denominations and they keep splitting and forming new denominations. So essentially, if you have uh, this large mass of people who are claiming to build theology on the scripture alone, and, and yet they keep disagreeing on everything and keep splitting and forming new groups, there's something wrong with the principle of Sola Scriptura. So that's, that's an argument that has been put out by Catholics and by uh, Orthodox theologians. Now, 
as this is happening, uh, there has been something of a, of a trend for, for um, Protestants to convert to Catholicism or Orthodoxy because of this, this very point uh, mentioned here. So in light of this, uh, within this fairly recent past, we have a, a popular book that came out called uh, The Shape of Sola Scriptura by Keith Matheson. And this book has been an attempt to, to kind of address these accusations coming from, from Catholic and Orthodox sources. And the approach that, that Matheson has taken is to argue that um, modern Protestants or modern evangelicals are not really following the, the method of the reformers, they're actually following the methods of the radical reformers, right? So here's a, um, here's a quote, and um, because I'm kind of taking this quote from the middle of a paragraph, I'm, I'm giving a bit of a uh, explanation here. It says, attempting to defend Protestantism, Matheson explains that it was the Radical Reformation's view of scripture and not the magisterial view that denied, and here starts the quote, the authority of tradition in any real sense. The scriptures were considered not only the sole and final, sole, final and infallible authority, but the only authority whatsoever. The Enlightenment added the philosophical framework in which to comprehend this individualism. The individual reason was elevated to the position of final authority. Appeals to antiquity and tradition of any kind were ridiculed. <clears throat> in the early years of the United States, democratic populism swept the people along in its fervor. The result is a modern American evangelicalism which has redefined Sola Scriptura in terms of secular enlightenment rationalism and rugged democratic individualism. That is a pretty well-worded, powerful quote that, I mean, I enjoyed the, the way the, the author expresses himself here to get his point across. So he's saying that, you know, you, you, take, you take the radical notion of Sola Scriptura and you add to that uh, the in individualism that came out of the enlightenment plus, uh, uh, you know, the democratic fervor of, of early America. And, and that explains why you have modern evangelicalism with all this, all these different groups, all these different denominations that cannot agree on anything. Anyway, Matheson continues here. I'm gonna read a couple more quotes. He says, rather than placing the final authority in scripture as it intends to do, this concept of scripture places the final authority in the reason and judgment of each individual believer. The result is relativism, subjectivism and theological chaos that we see in modern evangelicalism today. A fundamental and self-evident truth that seems to be unconsciously overlooked by proponents of the modern evangelical version of sola scriptura, uh, this is a new term that I'm gonna come back to in a second, is that no one is infallible in his interpretation of scripture. Each of us comes to the scripture with different presuppositions, blind spot, ignorance of important facts, and most importantly, with sinfulness. Because of this, we each read things into scripture that are not there and miss things that in scripture that are there. All right, so I'm, I, I've been reading from the book, The Shape of Sola Scriptura by Keith Matheson, and this is page 240. So um, Matheson uses this, this phrase, solo scriptura, instead of sola scriptura. Solo means you're basically interpreting things by yourself. You're, you're using your own private interpretation to to do, to read the Bible. So you're not really doing sola scriptura, you're doing your own version of, of scriptural interpretation. All right, so <clears throat> basically 
the defense that Matheson has for, for the accusation that is coming in from Catholics and, and uh, Orthodox um, theologians is that <clears throat> the modern evangelicalism that we see uh, around us, especially in America, but by now it's, it's all over the world, it's not really Protestantism. It's more like the radical Reformation. So it's not really sola scriptura, it's actually solo scriptura. Um, when Protestants use the phrase sola scriptura, what they were referring to is not the Bible alone, but they were pro promoting a return to the interpre interpretation of the Bible uh, that was used by the early church fathers, uh, which was known as the regular fide or the regular faith. Um, solo scriptura, this idea that each individual is just going to interpret the Bible the, the way they want to or the way they can on their own, uh, ends up being uh, leading to relativism, subjectivism, and theological chaos. Um, so um, that, that more or less, as, as far as Matheson is concerned, it explains why uh, the Protestant world is in the in the condition it is today. Now, I'm I'm not here necessarily to judge Matheson's thesis to say whether he's right or the the Catholics and the Orthodox are right. The, there is one issue with his thesis, and that is mostly that there was division among the Protestants even before the Radical Reformation <clears throat> had a, had a chance to pick up steam. Uh, I mean, from the very beginning, Luther couldn't agree with Zwingli. He couldn't agree with Calvin, and so on. So. The division was there, uh, whether it can be explained by, by this, this rationale that Matheson is proposing or not, that, that's another question that is not really <clears throat> applicable to, to the, the present concerns that we're, we're trying to, to address. Um, just to look at this, uh, for those that are watching the video, I, I have this graphic where um, I say you have the early church or the regular fide, I'm just kind of graphically explaining Matheson's uh, thesis here. You have the early church in the regular fide, and then Catholicism moved away from that to human tradition. Uh, Protestantism went back to this regular fide, fide, but evangelicalism or fundamentalism, like I, I labeled it earlier, moved away to the other extreme and they created solo scripture, which is basically a private interpretation of scripture. So that's kind of a graphical representation of the, of the argument. All right. So uh, the implications that I want to draw from everything we've discussed so far, regardless of who's right and who's wrong here, as far as Matheson's arguments are concerned, uh, the implication that I'm getting from all this is that first sola scriptura, the Protestant version of sola scriptura does not actually mean Bible only. And everyone from Alison McGrath to Matheson and, and many other theologians today seem to, to agree with that concept. The Protestant Sola Scriptura is not Bible only. Protestant Sola Scriptura means the Bible within the sphere of early Christian tradition. The other thing that there seems to be a consensus, not just among Protestants, but also about, among Catholics and, and Orthodox theologians, is that this, this concept of Sola Scriptura, where each individual just reads the Bible for themselves and, and comes up to their own conclusion, it doesn't work. Everybody seems to be in agreement except the fundamentalists or the people that actually do it. Everybody else seems to be in agreement that this process doesn't work. So if you take this two together, if, if the, the, the people that have claimed to be doing Sola Scriptura all these years from the Reformation, 
which is the Protestants, they admit that they don't actually mean the Bible only. And the people who do mean the Bible only are not actually doing a theology that works. And everybody else seems to be in consensus that, that the Bible only theology these people are doing doesn't work. Then the conclusion is that nobody's actually doing a Bible only theology, a true Sola Scriptura theology. And I've mentioned in the introduction to this series that uh, there's many people, many theologians who, who argue that it is impossible to do a truly a true and pure Sola Scriptura theology. And I, I quoted uh, uh, an Orthodox theologian by the name of Clark Carlton before um, in, that, in that early first video, where he claimed that such a theology is absurd. It's absurd to believe that you could do theology with the Bible alone, according to him. Now, in the project that I'm doing here, what I'm arguing is that, logically speaking, there's no reason why there couldn't be a Sola Scriptura theology. Even though nobody has done it, even though people haven't figured out how to do it, logically, such a thing should be possible. And I'm gonna explain why in the next video. But if I'm right, and if in fact, it is possible to do a Sola Scriptura theology, it's quite, it should be quite an embarrassment to the Christian world that 2000 years have passed and no one has done uh, a theology based on the Christianity's central text. I mean, if you look at the Christian world, we have every kind of theology in the world. We have, uh, I don't wanna, mention some of the names because I might get in trouble, but you know, we have uh, Asian theology and we have liberation theology and we have feminist theology and we have uh, black theology and we have theology done from every possible imaginable angle, except a sola scriptura, a scripture only theology. <clears throat> so if such a thing is possible, it should be taken as an embarrassment that it hasn't been done yet, or, or at least that people are not aware of this theology along all, at least along all the other ones, if not actually more front and center, because if you could list all the possible approaches to theology uh, and put them all on a table, one that is built on, on, <clears throat> on this text that has, has been reverenced by Christians from the beginning uh, of Christian history, it should have a more prominent role. And every, um, theology student uh, going to, you know, going to any kind of seminary, regardless of whether they're liberal or Catholic or New Orthodox or whatever, they should be aware, if such a thing is possible, if such a thing exists, they should be aware that it exists and understand the basics of how it works. Uh, it, it would make no sense for people to be clueless about the fact that there, there would be, there can be such a thing as a Sola Scriptura theology. So, um, in that sense, I think this project that I'm working on, that I'm presenting here, I think it's an important project and, and it, should be, um, it should be taken seriously and people should consider uh, what I'm about to share over the next few episodes. Or if people prefer to read, they could read the, the document entitled um, <clears throat> The Sola Scriptura Manifesto, which is on the website Sola Scriptura Zoom Church. All right, so moving on, there's one more thing we got to tackle before we close this, this episode. And that is a question of why it would matter. Like if, if Protestants rely on the church fathers to guide their interpretation of scripture, what would be missing or what would change if we didn't rely on the church fathers? So one, um, one possible thing that could change that would have a major impact on theology is the, the lack of reliance on Greek philosophy. So what I'm saying with this is that the fathers 
the church fathers uh, basically did their theology within a context where philosophy was considered um, the, the, the Greek perspective on philosophy was taken for granted. And it's possible that this impacted the way they did their theology. And if we go back to the scripture and do theology of the Bible alone, it would affect our, how our theology progresses because of this. So uh, what I'm going to be reading next is a series, series of paragraphs coming from the book, a history of, The History of Christian Thought by Jonathan Hill. I'm using the Kindle version, so all the page numbers are actually Kindle locations. Now, uh, I found this book interesting because it covers the entire history uh, of Christianity from the time of Christ until today, but it begins with this, the first section of the book is the section on the church fathers, and the very first chapter in that section is a chapter on Greek philosophy. In other words, the author felt that for us, in order for us to really understand the, the early developments in Christian thought, we really have to understand a little bit about Christian, about Greek philosophy first. Okay, so that, that's, that's very consequential. So here are some of these paragraphs, uh, some of the paragraphs from this chapter. It says, Christianity first appeared as a development within Judaism. The first issues that the early Christians had to deal with were those concerning the new faith's relations to its parent religion. The most famous example being the circumcision controversy described in Paul's letter to the Galatians. As Christianity grew, however, it had to come to terms with religious and intellectual movements in the wider world, something it has been doing ever since. During those first centuries, theologians had to evaluate these rival movements and try to establish the place of their own faith in relation to them. Should they bitterly oppose anything non-Christian or try to take over the best ideas of their rivals? <clears throat> the movements that had most influence on early Christianity were the schools of Greek philosophy. Today, philosophy is an academic discipline understood only by specialists. In ancient times, however, it was much broader. Philosophy dealt with issues we would normally associate today with science, the nature of the world, what it is made of, where it came from. It also dealt with what we would consider religious issues, the existence and nature of God, the nature of the soul, life after death, suffering, and salvation. Okay, so this is an excerpt from the introductory chapter to the book uh, by Jonathan Hill, where he introduces um, the reader to the fact that the world of the early church fathers was immersed in a certain perspective of reality that, that had been uh, established by the Greeks. Okay, so the only other thing I wanna mention from this book is that um, on page 225 and 1604, or location 225 and 1604, he mentions some key people and I'm only mentioning two here. The first is Justin Martyr, and I'm mentioning him because he lived so early. He lived around 100 AD. And Jonathan Hill mentions that his account of Christianity drew heavily on his Platonic past. He was a convert to, convert to Christianity, um, and he was a Platonist prior to that, but he continued uh, to hold on to many of his Platonistic concepts even as he became a Christian. So this is happening as early as 100 AD basically right around the time the last of the apostles were dying. Uh, now, another one, another you know, influential individual who lived several centuries later is Augustine. He's, he's the one that might, be, might have had the most influence on the Protestant Reformation and um, alongside uh, Aquinas on the Catholic Church. 
Augustine, um, Hill, Jonathan Hill says regarding Augustine that he did not cease to be a Neoplatonist, which is the version of Platonism that was popular at that point in history, 200, 300 years later. <clears throat> um, he did not cease to be a Neoplatonist when he became a Christian. Okay, so these are just two of the, the um, influential church fathers. Um, and uh, modern historians uh, claim that they, they were seriously influenced by Greek philosophy even after they became Christians. So if we're going to do Soa Scriptura theology, if such a thing exists, then one key area where we might end up taking a different route and, and ending up in a ending up to reaching different conclusions could be this. It could be that because of, of philosophy, the church fathers had had a, a different understanding of the scripture than they would have had if, if they, they hadn't been influenced by Greek philosophy. So that's basically just sort of setting the stage for uh, what the direction we're possibly going to take as we as we progress with this um, over the next few episodes. Okay, so the, the last question we're going to close with is why Sola Scriptura? Why are we even looking at this? Now, when it comes to philosophy, um, I've, I've talked to enough people to know that some will come back, back at me for what I've said in the previous uh, slide and say, well, uh, that's not true. The church fathers were not influenced by philosophy. And, you know, I'm not here to argue this. This is basically what many modern church historians are saying. If they're wrong, they're wrong, but I'm just going along with that as a possibility. Others will say, no, they were influenced by Greek philosophers, but the reason that they accepted that influence is because they realized the, the Greek way of thought lined up with the Christian way of thought. And even the church fathers actually say this. Uh, in the paper, I have a quote. Um, uh, I don't remember who, who it is right now, but one of the church fathers made the statement that uh, <clears throat> the law was given to Moses and philosophy to the Greeks. So basically, the way he was, he made the, the, the implication of that statement is that the Greeks were just as inspired in working out their philosophy as Moses was inspired in, in writing the Torah. Uh, and this is coming from somebody living, uh, an influential Christian uh, theologian living somewhere within the first two, three hundred years after Christ. Okay, so there are um, modern theologians who will say, well, there's no reason to think that there's a conflict between Greek philosophy and Christian theology. So we're okay with the fact that the, the fathers were influenced by philosophy. Others will say, no, they weren't influenced. They, you know, they, they came across many ideas like Gnostic ideas and so on, and they rejected them. So there was no influence. I'm, I'm not going to get involved in that debate, however, because I'm saying all that matters is that the possibility exists. The possibility exists that that the fathers were, were came under this influence. And if that possibility exists, we need to consider uh, <clears throat> where theology would lead us without that influence. So if we can't go to the Bible and, and, and develop our theology with the Bible only, then we should, so that we can see if it's going to take us somewhere different than it would if we <clears throat> read the Bible through the through the glasses of the church fathers. Okay, so <clears throat> uh, other people might say, look, 
all this is fine. Solar scriptura, it's probably a pos it's it's probably possible to do, but at this point, it's kind of late to even think about that. You know, maybe two three hundred years ago, it would have made sense to to take some time and say, okay, how about we try to figure out how to do theology of the Bible alone and let's see where that takes us. But today, you know, we're living in in the twenty first century. We have a very different view of the world. And the main concern of Christian theologians today should be to figure out how to develop a synthesis between modernity and antiquity and how to, how to hold on to the, the essence of the Christian religion in a time that seems to be very different, you know, where, where science takes us in a different direction and culture takes us in a different direction. Find, find a way to kind of harmonize those two. And I, I think the majority of theologians today are working in, in, towards that goal. And that's, that's all fine and good, but I would say um, a sola scriptura theology is important regardless. Even if people ultimately disagree with the conclusions, the nature of scripture for Christianity is of such an importance that everyone should be aware of what theology would look like with the Bible alone, regardless of whether they agree with that theology or not. Um, it, is, it is inherently important because the scripture is important to Christianity. Okay, now with that said, I have divided this series of lectures into two parts. The first several episodes are gonna pick up the question of whether uh, the sola scriptura theology is viable, whether it's, it's a coherent concept, whether there is a functional methodology to develop this theology and how it relates to Orthodox Christian thought. So that's the first set of episodes the first three, four, five, I'm, I'm not sure yet how long it's going to take. The next section is going to deal with Sola Scriptura theology in relation to modern thought. And I separated those two because they don't overlap well. It's hard to talk about both of those concerns at once. So if, if somebody's listening to this series and they don't care as much about how Sola Scriptura, this theology is being developed, as much as they care about how it interacts with, with modern concerns like higher criticism, historic, uh, yeah, critical scholarship and so on, uh, with the things like the theory of evolution and all these other things. If they want to jump ahead, they could look for the episode that's gonna be titled Sola Scriptura versus Modernity. Um, I don't know the number yet, but just look for that title and go from there. And in that section of the, of the podcast series, I'm gonna be addressing those concerns. Um, so with that said, um, in the next episode, we're going to dive into the Sola Scriptura methodology and go from there.